This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Normally, I like to start with a clip from my guests, but today, a couple of things I had to clarify before we go on. When I interviewed Jeff Slugulch from Columbia University, it was prior to the Twitter war between the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, and the president of the United States. Also, we had the senseless attack in Las Vegas, and our hearts, our minds, and our prayers go out to the victims and the survivors of the shooting. Ian Weekly starts now. EM Weekly, in the news. Topics for today are Hurricane Maria and the Las Vegas shooting. Lessons learned. Death toll on hurricane-ravaged Puerto Rico more than doubled overnight from October 3rd, 2017 to October 4th, 2017, from 16 to 34. Reports have been slow to arrive from the devastated hospitals. For two weeks, resident Nick Poetry has been flying almost daily runs to pick up the sick and drop off supplies. Even now, it's hard to measure the staggering toll of the hurricane. Where do these people go? There's absolutely nothing left, Poultry said. Most people there are still without power and water, and aid is arriving very slowly. It'll take months to restore electricity, according to some estimates. Further inland, Lapoca Poultry landed near a community hospital with dwindling supplies. Dr. Jose Villafan is struggling to get help for the sickest patients. As we stabilize them and we try to transfer them to other hospitals, they are dying in other settings, Villafan said. So they end up dying either way, to the hospital or here or elsewhere or in San Juan. So as Poetry looks down at his helicopter and knows more suffering than he can see, we don't see it because we can't help get these people. No one's going out to them, he said. Finding out who's there, who's missing, literally, it has to happen door-to-door basis. Supplies are being delayed getting to the people due to poor conditions in the roads, delays in trucking, and the reduction in the workforce. When we talk about disasters, we're thinking about normally around a 40% uh, reduction in the workforce, uh, whether it be uh, due to the fact that they are victims themselves, or their families are hurt, or um, they just can't get to work. It seems like Puerto Rico has seen an 80% reduction in their workforce due to the same things. Either they can't get to work, they're victims themselves, their families are victims, their homes are destroyed. So, what's the answer? Well, we're going to have to get aid to them somehow. We're going to have to get people down to them, and that's going to be the only answer. So, uh, let's keep uh, let's keep an eye on uh, Maria here, and uh, let's uh, keep them in our prayers and our thoughts, and let's uh, keep moving forward and We need to help that island recover. Las Vegas. I'm not going to give a regular Las Vegas report regarding what's going on. There's a lot of news coverage on this, but I want to talk about lessons learned. And there's an interesting piece here from North Carolina. In response to the Las Vegas shooting, they offer lessons learned to their local trauma centers. As with other deadly attacks on crowds in the U.S. and overseas, trauma centers would step up uh, their training and planning for similar events 
occurred locally. Now, we go back all the way to the Boston bombing, even further back, but let's just talk about the Boston bombing and what lessons that were learned there. Boston bombing, as we learned in uh, one of our other episodes, it was a unique time because there was a, a time of shift change. So there was double staff. It was a, a run. So they already had EMS on standby. Goes That goes back to lessons learned at the um, Los Angeles City Marathon, where there was an MCI that had to call ambulances in. So marathons have been planning for this. Unique circumstances there in Boston. Moved to Vegas, they were calling in EMS. People were loading people in the back of trucks, and they were going to the hospitals, and they're overwhelmed. In Las Vegas, there's only one level one trauma center, right, for a city that size. It's very, very small. Uh, and there's only, I think from what I understand, and, and I have to search this a little bit more, there's only a couple of, of medical schools in Nevada completely. So that makes a big difference. So North Carolina, they're already getting ready for an event possible, and they already have in, in place a communications that hospitals can speak to each other. They say in North Carolina, the hospitals are pretty competitive with each other, but in times of, of a crisis, they work together. In the past several years, there have been a variety of attacks, leaving dozens of people, hundreds of people, uh, critically injured. So the Las Vegas hospitals that try to save every life, the hundreds of shooting victims, they talk about specifically how the hospitals respond to those strategies offer lessons learned everywhere. So the number of incoming wounded is larger than any single hospital could hope to handle. So what do we do? We have to divide them up into other hospitals, right? And so that means that we're calling all nurses and doctors and ER techs into the hospitals to work at this time. It's all hands of approach. I know we talk a lot about our first responders, our police, EMS, and fire out there doing it. But don't forget that the nurses, the doctors, the lab techs, the ER techs are all coming in and working these hospitals at the same time. So hats off to them as well. We're going to talk more about hospital readiness in, in the future. I just wanted to kind of touch on that today. That's Ian Weekly in the news. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. I have with me uh, Jeff Schlegenolch from Columbia University, and he's going to talk a little bit about what he does down there with the research they're doing with emergency management and disaster response. And I'm excited about hearing about what they did down in Texas uh, with their uh, research and views and, and everything, how it went. And Jeff, welcome to Ian Weekly. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell me a little quick history about yourself and what you guys do at Columbia. Sure, absolutely. Um, so my background is I started out in the field in public health preparedness. Um, I was working on my uh, master's in public health at the time uh, after 9-11 when um, you know, funding was at its peak in 2003, 2004. did an internship for the city of Boston and turned that into a full-time job as a planner and later also an epidemiologist doing a lot of bioterrorism planning, infectious disease planning. Um, working for the city, and then eventually moved over to the Yale New Haven Health System, which had some inward-facing preparedness stuff, and then um, also a, kind of a quasi-consulting environment, so got to work with groups all around the country, and then ultimately found myself in uh, Columbia University at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness. We're based at the Earth Institute there, and uh, I think what really attracted me to that is that it has a very strong foundation in 
the research and in, uh, you know, those academic principles of having a strong evidence base, but it, we're very, very impact oriented. And so we're always looking to not only sort of capture and understand the best research that's out there on disaster preparedness, but we want to see that it's applied and that it's applied to contemporary issues in disaster policy at the national level, at the local level, um, and also in the fields of practice, whether it's uh, information management, education and training, exercises, coalition development, but how do we translate uh, what we learn in the science into tools that folks can use every day? Well, that's really kind of cool stuff right there. Now, are you guys doing different things than, say, Delaware is doing and or Colorado? Yeah. And, you know, those are both also great institutions. I recently got back from a uh, conference that was hosted um, out in uh, Colorado with the, uh, I should say, a meeting, the National Hazards Conference. There was a meeting of the uh, disaster academic centers where the leadership came together. And it's amazing where, you know, you used to be able to count on one hand the number of centers. Now there are literally dozens out there focused on this. Uh, and all everyone takes kind of a different slice at this really based on the people who are there and frankly the funding that they have access to um, and what they're supposed to do with that funding. So I think um, I think in a lot of ways as a part of the disaster research community we, we're sort of cut from the same DNA. Um, I think along the continuum of research into policy and practice we're very, very impact oriented um, and some other centers tend to, to populate the research a lot more and sort of have have larger research teams than than, um, than others. But, uh, but certainly uh, certainly from the same spectrum on the color wheel, I guess. When I first started in my academic journey, the really only people that were doing any kind of research, and it's from the, it was from the sociology department, was Delaware. And you've mm-hmm. seen it change uh, here and into different departments and different focuses. So I think that's, and I'm a wonk, just everybody out there. I mean, obviously, I'm a guy who runs a, an emergency preparedness podcast, right? So yeah. I'm, a, I'm a wonk. So I, I love to see this stuff grow. And, and um, as a professor that, myself that I teach, I really love the fact that there's more places for students to go do and get information on good research. So thank you for you guys for putting that together. Sure, sure, absolutely, and and like I said, it's great as you mentioned that there are so many other people getting engaged with this, so many other programs. I mean, Delaware really wrote the book on this stuff. They were doing it before it was cool, uh, made it cool, <laughs> but post nine eleven, as more funding came together, as more and more disasters have hit, and folks from other fields have come together. I think a lot of other centers have have grown into this and uh, really just formed great partnerships across different divides. So it's a very exciting time to be doing this work with the uh, the level of community that's being built around it, both within the profession and beyond. Yeah. One of the things that I'm doing is I'm, I'm writing a lot more and I've written, I wrote an article based upon what emergency management is versus leadership uh, versus management versus, you know, what exactly do they do? And uh, I'm writing a piece right now that I'm focusing on kind of where does emergency management fit in the role? Like what, what exactly they do during, uh, during a disaster. And I I just kind of want to hear your opinion on that. Now, going back to the history, right? We started off as a nuclear type of thing, right? With civil defense, then FEMA got formed in the seventies by Jimmy Carter. We still had a nuclear nexus. And then they kind of said, okay, yeah, now we have to do, let's, let's have those guys at FEMA do emergency response for disasters. And it kind of went, stagnant for I would like a better term for a long time and then 9/11 comes and we see this now a newer approach so can you kind of sort of take me through that history and how we've grown and where we are and where are we are we are we in our teens now are we in our 20s where where you know in the human lifespan where are we sitting as emergency managers today 
Yeah, you know, I, I'd say maybe we're in our late 20s, early 30s, like starting to figure some things out. The, um, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, the history of this is so important that, you know, born out of the civil defense days and uh, sort of some community engagement in the civil defense era and a lot of plans and and uh, uh, procedures around the nuclear threat. And then we get into the creation of FEMA and uh, sort of trying to centralize all that and the continuity of government planning and things like that. And then getting into kind of the modern era with Hurricane Andrew and a lot of these other responses that really uh, made us stretch our thinking and really evolve from more of a command and control to really coordinating across the resources of the government and what does that mean and what kind of leadership does that require. And, but the post 9-11 world has really, again, is one of those milestones um, that has changed emergency management. It's really, particularly at the state and local level, has professionalized it. Um, and it's not, I don't mean to, to be kind descending to anyone who was in this role beforehand. But beforehand, a lot of times there was just not a lot of funding available. This was something that was uh, an offshoot of a public safety agency, something maybe in fire or um, uh, uh, police or EMS. And, and it was maybe staffed by a part time person. It was really in post 9-11 that, that there actually became a career path for emergency management, um, particularly outside of the federal level. A lot of funding came into it. A lot of resources came into it. And a lot more research was being applied in a lot of different ways ways on this. Um, and so it, it looks very, very different now as an industry post 9-11 than pre 9-11. It's funded very differently. And the way that it's being leveraged, the kinds of disasters and the kinds of preparedness and the kind of community focus and of bringing people together. Um, and and I think, you know, in a way, it's become even more political. I don't mean that necessarily in the partisan sense of, of you know, you're either for free trade or you're not, or you're either for Obamacare or you're not. But what, <laughs> I, what, what, I, what I mean by that is that the, the networks that are required of an emergency manager to meet the needs that that a community faces in a disaster are across all different sectors, public, private, faith-based, um, multiple government organizations. And so it requires a, a deep understanding of the political structures and the political systems and the political incentives that play into that mix. And the most successful emergency managers, in my opinion, are ones who understand that are savvy enough to know how to navigate those systems in order to achieve ultimately a very objective goal that is very apolitical, which is uh, keeping people for, out of harm's way and returning them to normalcy or recovering even stronger after a disaster strikes. The returning back to normalcy and the normalcy bias associated with our messaging and whatnot with emergency management is key and making those, you're right, I mean, those those relationships prior to anything going on is really instrumental in making sure that our response as emergency managers uh, is successful. We have a large fire going on right now. Now, um, here in South Orange County, um, right. in Riverside County uh, border, to see that we're evacuating, that's like 1,100 people just were evacuated from their from their area, and to go off with without a hitch says a lot to how further how how much advance we've done with our, our emergency messaging and uh, building those coalitions prior to anything going on. And I think that's really important to, for emergency managers to be coalition builders. Changing gears here a little bit, so you responded to Houston or not, I shouldn't say Houston. I hate saying that. I, I keep getting myself caught on that. You responded to Texas. And we do know that Houston is the sexy one because it's a large city and everybody's focusing on that in the media. You know, we have Team Rubicon down there uh, all over the place that are doing stuff and, and they're doing a lot more work outside of the, the uh, city of Houston than they are in Houston. So let's talk about your trip to Texas. 
Yeah, yeah, no, and uh, thanks for bringing that up. And um, you know, we we went down there. Uh, respond is probably a strong word because, as you mentioned, there are teams like there, like Team Rubicon, the Cajun Navy, the FEMA, uh, Health and Human Services, the state and local responders who are really down there, actually getting their hands dirty and and pulling people out of harm's way and things like that. And so, um, so I mean, in that response sense, that that wasn't the kind of work that we were doing. And I want to you know give all the credit to just the amazing work that everyone is doing down there. But we went down there. Um, both uh, under the auspices of our organization, the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University. Our director is also the director of the Children's Health Fund, who, which uh, provides uh, medical care to uh, low-income children in areas that generally don't have access to health care. And it's through a network of uh, mobile medical units affiliated with programs, and they had some in the area, as well as some relationships with some potential donors and some uh, federal um, officials who we you know, were providing some feedback to and, and developing some tools for. So we really went down there um, to get a strong sense of what was going on and in particular what the long-term recovery needs were going to be. And that's where our center in particular has it has its most um, well-established involvement in disasters is not only conducting research in the recovery side, but also in developing tools and resources and, and working with communities um, in that recovery phase. So uh, our first trip down there, um, I should say that our only trip so far, though we're planning a much longer engagement. This isn't a one and done um, to snap a photo right. or anything like that. This is the first of uh, of many. Uh, was really to get a sense. I mean, and uh, you know, you mentioned Houston and corrected yourself. And actually, I I appreciate you doing that because we actually intentionally avoided going into Houston um, because it was such a nexus of media, of attention, of focus that our concern was actually in what's going on in these other areas outside of Houston where there's less attention, but probably even more profound vulnerability. And so we uh, we spent a few days there. We met, uh, we flew in and out of Austin and, and met with some state officials, some federal officials, and sort of got a sense from the command level what was going on. Heard a lot of great stories about how preparedness dollars and preparedness activities really helped coordinate the medical evacuations and things that, you know, the preparedness dollars really saved lives. Then we hooked up with a, a faith-based responder group that was also connected with this group that, um, uh, had a network of uh, uh, airplanes, uh, different private airplane owners. And it turned out that while many roads were inaccessible to the affected areas, there were over 100 pilots with planes ranging from large aircraft to small single engine aircraft. And there were uh, 50 or more municipal runways that were accessible in affected areas. So they were coordinating supplies from the faith-based community, packaging them, getting them set up, and then flying them out to these affected areas as the more formal response structure was working on getting you know, a larger presence and a larger footprint there. And so on the, the first day, um, I guess second day, first day we went to the command centers, we flew down uh, with someone who was actually uh, owned a wealth management company and had an aircraft and was shuttling people back and forth. So we went down to the Beaumont area, which was a uh, very heavily flooded kind of down by the Louisiana border and uh, were able to see sort of how some of these uh, churches and other faith-based organizations were uh, providing these resources, providing these supplies, water, diapers, uh, hygiene, sanitation kits to and distributing them and, and how this uh, infrastructure was set up. Um, and then the following day, we drove down to the Rockport area and uh, were able to see where the wind damage had occurred, where the, the Category 4 storm had made landfall uh, and really get a close look there. And very similar to, I mean, there definitely was a presence. You could see, you know, they had the assistance centers there. They had the line workers, uh, you know, working on the power lines. But there, too, also stumbled on, you know, a uh, an improv 
impromptu disaster relief camp that was a citizen there who was a private chef. Her business was destroyed, but her house survived. Hmm. And it became this uh, nexus of resources through social media. They started receiving donations. Um, they had generators coming in. They had a freezer truck. And uh, the Department of Health had actually inspected them and given them an interim uh, license to be able to serve food <laughs> to folks there, um, which, which strikes me because it's something where, you know, in the past we would have seen uh, a government agency say this is too much risk for people. It's not official. Let's shut it down. And then here instead, you know, really working with them and really working with these emergent response resources and saying, you know, let's let's uh, let's get this certified. Let's get this clear, you know, and get everything set up so that um, so that, you know, they really embraced these emergent responders that sort of supplemented um, a lot of the more formal resources that were coming through in many ways were able to help people uh, before they could get there. I'm learning that Texas is kind of a special place. I actually spoke to a former emergency manager here from Orange County who actually moved to the greater Houston area. And we had a conversation regarding um, some of the response and and lack of response, if you will, uh, from the government. But yet we still had the the citizens helping each other um, out out there. Is that... Do you think the whole thing with the health department, is that like a Texas specific thing? I mean, did we see the same thing happening, say, in Florida or, or other areas? Or do you think it's because of the, I don't know, the independence that Texas sort of has uh, that, that got that through? You know, I think it's a lot of different things, but it's also not an accident. And I think that's the most important thing is that is that the the whole community response of Texas um, has to do with a lot of different factors. It has to do with the level of investment that the state one, the level of funding that the state has received, um, how they've been able to invest that funding. And as you mentioned, this whole I mean, the governor came out very early on and said this is going to be about Texans helping Texans. And there is an underlying uh, culture of community and of taking care of each other and of taking care you know, um, that, that all played into this. So I, I don't know that there's a single answer to why this is, but there certainly are a lot of different things that we've seen from their healthcare coalition development to uh, the sheer scale that the faith-based community is able to operate at. Now, this is an area too that also has a lot of mega churches of 10,000 or more. So so you have big structures to begin with, but just the, the level of um, uh, sophistication of some of these supply chain networks and some of these informal networks uh, was really staggering. Um, I think in Florida, you saw um, some of this. Uh, Florida also is hit with a lot of hurricanes, has some underlying experience for this. The healthcare coalition structure, instead of giving more money to sort of these hubs that would um, coordinate this through some of the university and other healthcare systems, it was less money given to more counties. And so I think that's where you saw a little bit more difficulty in the healthcare, a little bit of confusion in the evacuation, the the issue, that tragic story of the um, patients who died at the nursing home. It's looking more and more like that was an anomaly that that probably is more specific to that situation rather than a larger systemic issue. Um, but there is a, um, but but all in all, I think, you know, Florida was well prepared to receive and manage and, and direct federal resources. Unfortunately, what we're seeing in Puerto Rico though, is where that level investment has it's not had as much attention. You've had a lot more underlying infrastructure issues. You've got a much higher level of devastation. You've got much less political capital in D.C. because they're, they don't have voting representation in Congress. Uh, and it's an island and it's much more isolated. So unfortunately, I think that, that the uh, outcome for Puerto Rico is going to be far worse and uh, far longer before we even have a strong sense of the damage um, in uh, kind of the mainstream emergency management community that's not directly there. 
Yeah, I've actually have some friends that are in Puerto Rico on the island itself. I was talking to them prior to the storm coming in and I, I was chatting with them online. My friend said, I have to go. I just lost power. Uh, I'm not sure. When I'm yeah. gonna, and I, he goes, I don't know when I'm going to be able to talk to you again. And I just, you know, he came back up a couple of days later and said, we got some power um, by generator kind of piecemealing it together. There's some cell coverage here and there. We're okay. And I said, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, Puerto Rico, that, that right there is a crazy, I, I think that's going to be an interesting study in itself. I mean, considering the fact that they evacuated the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands to Puerto Rico and, and then mm-hmm. Puerto Rico gets slammed and it's an amazing story. So that's, I think that's going to be one of those ones that we're going to be looking at for a few years, especially us in the academic center. Um, and then I think it's going to be a really good case study for, for us as far as response. It's crazy. I mean, that's, that's the whole situation on there. And we're still, I don't think we have a full understanding of what the impact was of the storm, do we? No, absolutely not. And I think this is one where, you know, I mean, in addition to the federal resources already being stretched thin, um, you know, as I mentioned, the lack of uh, sort of political capital that, I mean, you you don't have voting members of Congress sitting on appropriations committee that can sort of apply the kinds of pressure that other delegations can. You have underlying political issues and and infrastructure issues in the territory uh, long before the storm ever hit. And then you just have massive devastation um, that it caused much more widespread. And, you know, you don't have a bunch of roads from the neighboring states that you can take in and get pretty close. You know, the the Cajun Navy that responded to, to Texas and Louisiana and other parts, they can't, you know, attach a boat to the back of their truck and drive down there, you know. So there's just the sheer isolation of it mm-hmm. as well. And it's a large place with a lot of people. So of all of the things that I think worked out in favor of Texas, and again, this isn't to say everything went perfect. Of course, there were some things that went wrong. And we have to keep our eye on the ball for the long term recovery for Texas and Florida and the the areas in the surrounding states because um, because they're going to need it and they're going to need that sustained help. Um, but they're in a much better position to begin that recovery process than Puerto Rico because we're still going to be in response for weeks and probably months before we even have a full picture of this because it is just complete devastation over a large area um, and the very infrastructure designed to absorb uh, traditional federal emergency management response has been disrupted. And uh, so it's um, I I mean, I hope that it doesn't turn out that way. But every new bit of information that comes in uh, suggests that it will be. Right. I try to avoid politics as much as I can on the show and in my life, actually. But sometimes it's really hard to. And it seems to be that the Trump administration from the media is getting a lot of heat on the response. And I don't think and correct me if I'm wrong. Has there been an administration that's been tested this hard in emergency response in in my lifetime, I don't recall, but it seems like those major storms coming in and test this administration. Does the federal government have the ability today or have we diminished FEMA to the point to where they can't respond to something like this in such consecutive hits? Yeah, I'm not aware of any time, certainly in FEMA's history, where they've had to deal with this many major storms making landfall uh, really in their uh, nearly 40-year history. It definitely is unprecedented. I think the other thing, though, is that FEMA and really any federal response is primarily designed to build upon state and local response. Um, And when when we have these mega disasters, which is something that our center focuses on a lot, you have so much disruption to the very infrastructure that FEMA and that these other organizations plug in 
into that um, that it doesn't necessarily fit the model. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we're seeing in Puerto Rico as well, too, is that is that there's a lot of responders. There are a lot of folks doing good work, but the scale is so large and the ability to absorb it, the infrastructure to manage it. Um, and so uh, federal response is designed in most cases to supplement state and local, right. not replace, not replace state and local. But when you have, uh, like we saw after Katrina, such a, a catastrophic um, uh, damage to the underlying infrastructure, uh, to the underlying, even the political processes in the political political systems. Um, and I'll go just a little step further without getting too political. I, I, I was asked to do a, an op-ed for Fortune before Harvey hit on how President Trump r- was responding in the early days. Um, and I also have a podcast that I do focused on disaster politics and so really looking at these political structures and political systems. And I'll have to say that, you know, that there are a lot of things with the administration that people can choose to be angry about. Mm-hmm. Um, for right. Harvey and Irma, we saw a lot of the things happening that we would expect to happen. And this is what I wrote about in my piece in Fortune is that in the short run, you know, the role of the president is really fairly limited. They need to appoint really good people, which in this case we saw um, within FEMA, within the um, uh, Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Now, other areas, State Department, you know, EPA, I'll let you you know, decide that we'll let the pundits fight that out. <laughs> right, right. But the but but within, I mean, these were career professionals, and even the interim staff were carryovers. Where the Obama administration under Craig Fugate really put highly qualified people in these interim roles that weren't filled. So they passed the first test by putting good people in place. The second is to approve the, the disaster declarations, get everything out there in pre-stage so it can respond quickly. And we saw all of that happen exactly as it should. And then in the piece, I talk about the longer-term uh, recovery and how sustain that has to be and how the president, you know, needs to bring communities together and not drive them apart. And at the time it was too early to see. Now, unfortunately for Puerto Rico, while we saw a lot of these early declarations, a lot of things being approved um, for Harvey and Irma, for Maria, it seems to be much more delayed. We're seeing uh, much less realization of the scope of damage. We're seeing uh, at least initially a rejection for waiver in the Jones Act to allow foreign flagships to come into port there. So there are a lot of things here that I think we need to keep a close eye on. And again, this isn't about partisan politics. This is about what is the checklist that any elected official, and in this case, in the office of the president, needs to follow. Um, and I think we saw it followed very well uh, in the early stages of, of Harvey and Irma, but um, we're seeing some things missed for Maria. And again, it's one more on the long list of things that are making um, Maria's impact on Puerto Rico a much bigger challenge. You're completely correct on that. I mean, it, it's funny to see people quickly to, to jump on and, and not those that don't understand. And what I'm, what I'm, I hate to say this, there, there are definitely some people out there that don't really understand the process that are jumping on some things early. There were some definitely some, some missteps that I see uh, coming from the emergency management world on, on Maria. And, and I think we need to get in front of this and I don't know what the answer is. I, you know, I'm, I'm from California. I really can't impact the uh, federal policy. Does it just come down to the fact that we, that they don't have players in Congress? I mean, I know they have representation that's there kind of fighting for them, but is, do you think that's really what it comes down to? That you just want some people sitting in the right poll in the right groups. I hate to believe that, but maybe that's what it is. Well, I, I think it's a it's a multitude of factors. There's no one single thing. And again, I think that's the most important thing is that the first thing that you need in place to have a good federal response is a good state and local understanding uh, of what they need to ask and how they need to ask it and when they need to ask it. And I think that is really um, 
the difference even within Katrina to the state of Mississippi's response versus the state of Louisiana's response right. is, is the maturity of the of the internal emergency management structure. And so, you know, these underlying issues um, that um, that President Trump talked about with Puerto Rico about the deficit, about infrastructure. Now, they were very poorly communicated, I would say. They probably it wasn't helpful to tweet these things out. But at the, <laughs> at the same time, it's it's not untrue that these things are are factors in this and are factors in the ability to manage uh, a federal response from the state and local level. Uh, but also the criticism of the information is equally true that it, it you know, why are we, you know, uh, focused on other things um, while you know, the 95% of the island is still without power. Why right. isn't there a great focus? And um, a little bit too is that um, it, Maria and Puerto Rico requires a much more creative approach to disaster management than Harvey and Irma did. I think Harvey and Irma really learned and applied the lessons of Katrina all up and down the continuum. But the um, but Maria is a is a level of devastation, a level of isolation, um, and certainly not having that political presence and there not being an electoral incentive mm -hmm. for being on top of this is going to be an issue going forward. It probably has been an issue um, in terms of whether consciously or just sort of in the background is what are the pressure points for, for a politician? And first and foremost, it's their constituents. And when you don't have empowered constituents because they're in a territory rather than a state, it doesn't come to the top of mind the way that it does in a swing state like Florida. Right. Uh, so um, and again, I'm not saying that people are saying, oh, don't respond because there's no votes in that. Uh, but I think that there's um, um, uh, an unconscious behavior where we um, th there isn't a front and center political motivation. We're exhausted from two other responses. And then there was this kind of oh crap moment where everyone realized that how bad it was. And now things sort of seem to be getting into gear with all of this. To be fair for everybody, I mean, it's not just Puerto Rico who people forget that you know, as part of the United States and kind of, kind of makes me chuckle a little bit when you hear the news pundits out here talk about Puerto Rico and they have to tell everybody, yes, and they're all United States citizens. And, you know, it's the same thing with the people of Saipan and some people of Guam, you know, they're all United States citizens out there. Um, and we do have a bunch of territories that aren't represented necessarily in the way you think of in, in Congress. And I think all of those, those areas now, if we think about what Puerto Rico, um, maybe we need to take a, a closer look on how we can, can we respond to um, emergencies in those areas. But uh, again, that's a whole another another whole another podcast. One of the key differences in, in Puerto Rico, and, and you're absolutely right, because the U.S. Virgin Islands were hit. There are a lot of other areas that were hit, and it's kind of the Houston effect. It's because they're smaller and they're further away; they get less attention. Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is also much, much bigger, much more populated. Um, is sort of in a different uh, class in terms of infrastructure and population and size, but again, um, no more or less deserving than anywhere else of of the attention. Right. Um, and uh, I, it's it's this is uh, creating a lot of new things for an already stretched. Um, federal disaster workforce, who again, I want to emphasize, I think is is doing a lot of good work and is mm -hmm. working very hard, uh, but that doesn't, you know, working hard and, and doing things really well um, doesn't necessarily bridge the gap to the level of response uh, that's needed for this. And it, it's pushing it's pushing boundaries. It's it's an unprecedented level of strain on these agencies.
You know what I found kind of weird about this whole entire thing is that Cuomo flies from New York to Puerto Rico to go visit Puerto Rico. Coming from New York, that's actually no surprise at all. And I think that that's where uh, Puerto Rico does have a lot of political capital is with the expatriate community. Um, There's a tremendous uh, Puerto Rican population in the state of New York and in the city of New York. Um, And I think Cuomo went there with some very good intentions um, and for all the right reasons. But it also is no accident that there's also a very large voting bloc. Uh, with direct connections. And I think that, um, you know, again, um, and again, this is the focus of the the disaster politics podcast that I do is that these things do motivate. I mean, if you have a large voting block within your constituency, you're more likely to be engaged with the issues that they're engaged with. And uh, New York, I think, is going to be at the forefront of a lot of this uh, because of the the Puerto Rican community and other areas where you have a large Puerto Rican community. Um, There'll be more pressure on the legislators who do have voting authorities, who do sit on the appropriations committees. And that is one way in which uh, you may see uh, a little more momentum building um, for things like emergency supplemental fundings and, and more advocacy where the territory isn't empowered to advocate for itself. With the different responses, you have the Harvey response, the Irma response, and then the Maria response. Is the Maria response hindered because of the other two large-scale uh, hurricanes that hit the mainland more so? Or if Maria was by itself, do you think we'd still be having those same hiccups in the response? Um, I think both are simultaneously true. I mean, I think there are certain things about Maria uh, that we've been a little slow to react to. I think there is a lot of confusion. There was a recent poll I saw out that um, I think the number was 47 percent, but it was roughly half of Americans don't realize that that uh, Puerto Ricans are American citizens. Um, You have, uh, you know, you have all of the underlying issues that have nothing to do with the other storms in terms of infrastructure, in terms of um, um, political issues um, over you know, decades on the island at sort of the state and local level, infrastructure issues, the isolation of it as an island and the destructive power of Maria were all uh, factors that are independent of how much federal resources are strained. Mm. And so I think I think anywhere you see this level of devastation, you're going to have a delay in getting in there because the, you know, to, to use just one very simple example, the roads you need to drive on to get there are all washed out. So you can't even physically get there. And so over an area this big with this many people. Now, with that being said, no doubt that a lot of resources have been stretched across the other two responses. And these aren't small hurricanes or small areas. Um, you know, one thing going to Texas, it reinforced for me, too. It's big. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a while to get around. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of teams and there's a tremendous national capacity. And FEMA certainly trains for and the federal government certainly trains for different weapons of mass destruction type of um, scenarios, nuclear scenarios, things like that. But when you have, I mean, you've got a major chunk of the United States that is under direct, you know, disaster response, in some cases, disaster recovery. And that's not even, we haven't even really talked much about the wildfires out West that you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. and the other disasters that are always constantly going on as well too. Um, You know, there's only so much. And, and, um, and the other factor too, is I think there was this exhaustion um, Mm -hmm. both in, you know, across, I, I mean, I can tell you too, is I'm not in the field responding the way that these folks are. We're, monitoring, we're doing interviews, we're advising, we're, you know, taking some of our practical tools and revamping them. Um, and I'm exhausted. And so I can't even imagine what somebody in the field really actually <laughs> doing, uh, doing real stuff, right. um, is, is, um, 
And so, yeah, yeah, that weighs on it. I mean, we do it and the folks in the field do it because that's what, that's what we do in this field is we figure out how we can help and we do within our role as much as we can to help. Um, but there are limits, there are limits to the capacity and there are limits to the energy going into this. And, uh, no doubt that that is contributing in some way. Uh, it's, it's human, human nature. It's part of the human condition. And right, not to mention in the mix of this, we have a large earthquake in Mexico City, and yeah. we sent, when I say we, California, uh, sent a couple task force down there to do some search and rescue, so we're sending resources to foreign countries as well, which rightfully so, they needed it, so I'm not I'm not slagging that by any means. It's just another another uh, uh, button that, that came into this entire situation, you know, and with the yeah. earthquake, and, and in, in the middle of the earthquake, we also have, what, a volcano pop-off, so... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we are definitely in some crazy times here uh, with our responses. Yeah, yeah. We just need, I think we need pestilence and plague, and then uh, <laughs> we, we're hitting all the horsemen, yeah. yeah. Oh, here we go again. Oh, man, no yeah, kidding. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and, and the, the great information that you gave us. If anybody wanted to get in touch with you, um, how would they do it? And also, uh, give the address to your podcast as well, and we'll take this information and we'll put it in the show notes and make sure that uh, if you don't have a pencil in hand that you can go ahead and, and click on the resources down below. So go ahead and share that information with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Sluggle, J-E-F-F-S-C-H-L-E-G-E-L. Um, and uh, the podcast, you can follow the podcast on Twitter. It's at Disaster Politic. Um, the main page is on SoundCloud, but you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and everywhere else. Just do a search for Disaster Politics Podcast. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, and then you can follow our center at ncdp.columbia.edu. And the NCDP is just the acronym for National Center for Disaster Prepared. So ncdp.columbia.edu. Um, and if that's not enough, um, then uh, I think there's email links and things like that all over. So, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, send me a carrier pigeon. I'll send one back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Everybody, I want to thank you all for uh, for listening today uh, on this podcast. If you are on the iTunes or uh, any other media uh, uh, downloading, please go to the comments. Just tell us how we're doing. Um, let us know. So, And if there's anybody who you would like to hear from uh, on the podcast, again, let us know. And I do appreciate everybody listening, Jeff, and I appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for doing this, and everyone out there responding. Just be safe, and uh, you're in our thoughts. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com.